Hello, everyone. Welcome to Collisions YYC Current and Critical. I'm your host, Tyler Chisholm. Thank you for joining me today for another good old-fashioned chat. Today's show is brought to you in partnership with Sate Corporate Training. A huge thank you to Craig Hass and his team for their ongoing support of the Collisions YYC podcast. 40% of people globally are considering leaving their employer before the end of the year, according to a 2021 survey conducted by Microsoft. Whether you're a senior leader, a manager, or an individual contributor, hearing that stat for the first time, it's going to get your attention. For me, aside from freaking me out a little bit, the first question I had to ask myself is why? Well, let's be honest. It's been 18 months of the pandemic, and many of us are left unfulfilled and looking for change. This may be tied to lack of perceived advancement in your careers over the past year, or by organizations being in survival mode versus growth mode, or simply being, quote unquote, locked in our houses for the last 18 months. We're looking for something different, and we're look, more importantly, we're looking for change. No matter what the reason, I think we're about to turn the corner to what is going to be the greatest economic opportunity of the past century. Are we ready? Since its founding in our province over 100 years ago, SAIT has been at the leading edge of what our citizens and companies need to be competitive locally and on the global stage. To find out more what they can do for you as an individual or as an organization, check them out at sate.ca slash corporate training. Or better yet, open up your email and contact Craig Hess directly, craig.hess, H-E-S-S, at sate.ca. He'd love to chat with you, walk you through your needs, and more importantly, how they can help. So warm collisions, YYC, welcome to Miss Sheena Rogers-Pfeiffer. How are you, Sheena? I'm great. I feel you and I haven't met, but I think we've crossed paths. Did you used to work out at uh, Repsol or Talisman or one or somewhere? I don't know. I feel oh, that you and I have crossed paths before, just never connected. Classic Calgary. Probably. I Classic Calgary, for sure. I definitely <laughs> recognize your name, and I'm sure we have crossed paths, like whether in the agency world, yes. or which is probably maybe more of where we cross paths. And I did but, see, yeah, I, was creeping on, I was creeping on your LinkedIn, which, which we all do as professional creepers mm-hmm. these days. You were a top 40 under 40, I see as well. Yeah. What year were you? Yes. Now, 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 when it gets dangerous, what year were you top forty? And I'll tell you what year I was top forty. Someone else just asked me this, and I had to remember. I feel like I was two thousand and uh, okay. Wait, was I pre children or post children? I think I was two thousand and nine. No, is that two thousand eight or nine? Okay. Oh, you're a couple years. I know. I was, I was in I, my twenties. I was twenty. Yeah. I was twenty. I was twenty twelve, and I was not in my twenties for the record. But we'll just leave. We'll just leave yeah. it at that. <laughs> I stuck it. I stuck it under the wire. Um, you, I'm trying. I, to, I'm trying to go in one last time. I have like I don't know what. It's the clocks to get. I have eighteen months till I can still qualify. <laughs> okay. Oh, nice. Nice. Well, I think goals. Goals are very important. Well, hey, let's get goals let's get good. right down to it. You you are an agency owner, but let's we'll talk about that a little bit because I'm assuming it led in and kind of gave you the foundation of what you've created. But you've created a technology startup and called RE Technology. And I will turn it over to you to let us know what Ari is all about. And then let's talk about the journey and what I'm sure was quite is, is and has been an adventure. Sure. So Ari is essentially a platform that facilitates commerce um, through word of mouth recommendations around the products and the brands that people love. So you can kind of think about us as a, a platform where you would go when you find that perfect thing, whether it's like the perfect shirt, or the perfect pair of jeans that fit or the perfume or whatever it is that you personally love. It's the place for you to advocate um, on behalf of that and help facilitate a direct to consumer experience with that brand and get noticed by that brand and others within the community for making that recommendation and helping people really understand the experience that you've had with it. So we kind of play in the um, in the sort of why space, if you think about it from a psychological standpoint. Okay. There's a lot of, you know, com- you know, commerce right now is very much either like active search or browsing sort of discovery. And we're sort mm-hmm. of playing in both, but more through an experiential human experience uh, standpoint. 
Okay. And what I'm, what I'm hearing is, is also adding a level of maybe credibility and authenticity. Cause what you also could have easily just explained was how TikTok or Instagram works with a paid influencer who's now giving you maybe a bit of a canned experience that wasn't necessarily authentic. So am I hearing also solving the problem of a non-authentic world that we kind of live in with social media now? I'm putting my own words to this for sure. Yeah, no, it's great. And every time I talk to somebody, I love how people sort of reflect back on what <laughs> I've explained to RES because it helps me learn as well and how people interpret it. Uh, so yeah, it's, I mean, that, that's so true. And I think that's really where it started for me, like a big, it started in, you know, a variety of different ways, but one of the angles for sure was around the the inauthenticity and the sort of demand for more of a trusted experience that we're starting to see this rising and changing demographic demand and that these existing platforms just aren't able to serve because they're, they've been built on the premise of follower count and vanity metrics <laughs> and, you know, business models that are all around paid content. So you can't, you can't ask for authenticity and expect authenticity when, you know, the, the infrastructure <laughs> itself isn't built for it. No, you're kind of going back to a problem that's as age as 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 old as as pub, print publications or radio or whatever the case may be. Oh, yeah. you you pay to advertise on our show, we'll promote you over here. Like there's always been a layer of that because you're right. Like follow the money and right if that's where the compensation yeah. and the financial model works. So when you say demographic, we'll get into maybe the the what your real why was, what drove you. But when you say demographic, is this more of a certain age group or is it more a certain set of psychographics belief structures? Like because I can be my age, but I could see my nephew also wanting that credibility that I also want and we're slightly different in age. So I'm curious if it is purely like based that way, or is it more just on a movement of what people are starting to expect? I think that's a great point. Um, and I love that you brought that up because we, I actually don't really believe in a lot of segmentation and demographic profiling. And I think it's just, you know, again, it's the, what we're used to, right. And what marketers are used to, it's sort of an easy way out. Um, so ours is very much Ours is both, right? I think, but more beliefs, behaviors. Uh, you know, David Allison. I don't know if you know David Allison. He's uh, he's the guy behind a methodology called Value Graphics. He's a close friend of mine, and he's all about bridging values across different sets of demographics and and segments and personas and finding what those like true value connectors are and that's that's our i mean even in our early stages as we're out there acquiring users the there the pattern in our users right now has nothing to do with age it has everything to do with the belief in the mission and the values that that Ari is presenting and you know i think we've attract we've created a really interesting sort of flytrap um, that, you know, it's, it's a, it's a social good flytrap in the sense that you're, if, when you're in Ari, you are part of something that is about being good and real and sincere and authentic in the world. And if you're not, then you're on the other side. Yeah, that's fine. But <laughs> I love but, it. What you, you know, stand we, for, but also what you stand against. That's all. Those are two powerful exactly. positions. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think you're right, though. As as I, I think we're now putting on our, our marketer hats. That world of like, oh, you can you can buy the 25 to 35 demographic, or you can buy the you know, and it's always been like back to the business model of like, well, this is the eyes we've curated, and this is the the stats and the listenership or the viewership that we have. And if you want to buy this, here you go. And you know, it's up to you now to kind of get your message right to then try to segment. But there's you know, I've led lots of studies like, well, yeah, but there's this older generation who's now acting like a millennial, or they're always talking about that versus the what you yeah. said. I love. Well, no, how how about they just have shared values? How about, like, how about, yeah. can't, can't we just say, this isn't an old person acting like a young person. It's people that care about similar things. I like that. I like that yeah. a lot better. And shared yeah. values, like shared values is also how you get to adoption. It's not, you know, there's an awareness and adoption. I'm reading a really great book right now called, um, 
uh, change, how to make big things happen. It's a new book. Uh, and he talks, he's a, he's a professor at, uh, I'm going to screw this up. He's probably like, I hope he's not listening, but I think he's at Stanford. Um, but anyways, he, uh, he wrote about the sort of psychology between awareness and adoption. And I love this book so much because it stands for everything that Ari represents in the sense that he says adoption happens through shared values and through this sort of peripheral social networking at a grassroots level, right? Through social validation and credibility and coordination, right? It doesn't happen when Oprah or a famous influencer that has a million in a million followers talks about something, right? That's awareness. And you can pay all day for awareness, right? And awareness is, is still valid in, in, mm -hmm. in the marketing world, for sure. You need it to be top of mind, but it has absolutely no, um, no connection or no real, I guess you could say it's not a real metric for, for growth and adoption. And, you know, so if you ever want to really get into like the, the nitty gritty and the psychology of it, I highly recommend that book and I'll send you a link on it. Oh, I, I like I, I I wrote it down and yeah definitely we'll we'll plug it in the show, in the show notes. But what I heard you like also awareness is easier to buy because we have a, a world that's built up to sell awareness. But then there's often that like how do we get to that next level? And I've always joked you know social media kind of makes the world a big. I grew up in a small town in rural Quebec. What you just talked about about peer to peer and at the coffee shop and did you hear about this? You know about that? That's the way we've kind of done things as a group as a society is like you know the the global village concept. But social media, mm -hmm. of course, because now it gets monetized it maybe takes it in a different place. But anyways, I feel like we're going yeah, down a whole nother podcast right now. Totally. That's like a whole other podcast. <laughs> but, but the point, the point being that the point being like to kind of connect it, I guess, back to Ari is that, you know, I truly am like, I've been in the marketing industry my entire career. So 18 plus years, almost 20 years now I am. And I've seen it all. And I think the part of the reason I created Ari was because I just believe we're moving in the wrong direction. And, you know, just like the, the financial crisis, we're going to hit a crisis of humanity here, I think pretty soon. And we have all the technology in the world. We have all the tools we have. We have the whole sort of foundational landscape set up for us to be doing the right things and, you know, feeding these, you know, creating real meaningful interactions with people. And, you know, commerce can easily happen through that. And if not, and if anything, commerce can actually be more successful through that route versus this sort of traditional paid, you know, let's try to pay someone off to try to get things quicker, faster, this doesn't work. It's a, it's a bottomless pit. I love how you say that because it makes it sound so dirty. We'll just pay them off and then they'll do the thing and it's not authentic. It. It's not real. And you, you're, <laughs> no, I love it. I think it's great. Let's, words matter. So how long is it? Yeah. Hey, let's get back to the journey. Um, I, I pretty well, yeah, I think, okay, you guys are going to have a part two just about the philosophy of what I love. Sure. I love where your head's at. How long is, what, when did Ari get established? So let's talk about the journey of being a tech startup. Yeah. So I established it about a year ago, right in the middle of COVID. So right <laughs> nice. when COVID started and it was, you know, the best time actually, because for the first time ever, I didn't have to be traveling back and forth to Calgary and Vancouver. Mm -hmm. um, I sort of had space to, to focus on this. So COVID actually was the best thing that ever happened to me uh, personally in a lot of ways, because I got to, I got to start Ari and I got to put my head down. So I boot camped myself into the tech world. I knew nothing. I didn't even know what a CPO from a CTO, like I, I didn't know the acronyms. I had, nice. I had, you know, nothing, I had no knowledge of the space whatsoever. And to be quite frank, it was pretty intimidating. I had like a lot of imposter syndrome at the very beginning for sure. But the one thing I did do right out of the gates is, and this is why I even got into it, is I had a friend of mine who was in uh, Silicon Valley and he's been in the tech space forever. He was working in WeWork, like he's been working for all the big guys and he was so tired of me 
talking to him about my idea that finally he said, Sheena, I'm flying to Vancouver and I'm going to move in with you into your basement and I'm going to teach you how to create a minimum, a minimal viable product and I'm going to teach you everything that I know and I'm going to boot camp you. And he did. He moved in. We worked 24 hours a day. We ran experiments. He taught me everything. He made me read Eric Reese's book, The Lean Startup. Uh, you know, he gave me he gave me blog posts to read. He basically, I mean, I'm so thankful for Thomas. He came in and kind of saved me and then set me free and allowed me to kind of go and chase this dream. So it was uh, it was it was a really cool, uh, a cool sort of first steps for us. Though that's an amazing story. And what an opportunity to have. Well, I'm sure it had its moments. Let's be honest. You can't escape. It's in your, it's, it's in your, he's downstairs. He's waiting to teach me something new. <laughs> oh, the pressure was, you know, he is that type of a coach. Like, you know, okay, Sheena, finish your dinner. It's time to get back to it. And I'm like, you're right. Okay, let's go. Well, the com- so. comparisons, use the word coach, mentor, you know, being an athlete, training for it, training for something and how much time and effort. And, and sometimes people aren't willing to put in, like there's a big gap between the idea, which ideas are yeah. fantastic and that they, we, we run on them, but there's a big difference. Like my business partner always jokes, he goes, there's a big difference between being an entrepreneur and calling yourself entrepreneurial. One, you might not eat that week. The other one, oh, I'm pretty entrepreneurial while I'm getting a full-time paycheck. So listen to you talk about it and having that opportunity. How long did you guys, how long was it from when he moved in, if that's going to, if that's going to be the line in the sand to when you were able to kind of stand up your first uh, MVP and, and start to get some actual, and did you do that pretty quickly? Like, did you put it out there pretty raw to start getting that feedback? Yeah. I mean, actually Ari went through a couple iterations even before we got to where we are today. It actually started as a MarTech company. So it actually started as a a platform that would connect, you know, people who loved brands with brands and they could actually, brands could actually create jobs for people to do on their behalf. So whether it was like put an event together on behalf of Pepsi or, um, you know, use your your office space window to 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 put a, a giant sign in, right? We were sort of looking mm, at like okay. it was sort of like an Airbnb for advertising and marketing. Yeah, kind of the, so capitalizing on the, the gig the gig economy and some of the other trends yeah. that are happening in those areas. Okay. Yeah, and so that's where it started. So we actually, uh, and you know, with with the technology sector, one thing that that I've really learned and that I'm an advocate for is the lean startup model, which is like experiment. Like run experiment after experiment after experiment, really follow your users, and that will lead you to product market fit. And so we started there just running a bunch of little experiments. We we did some paid ads. We had a bunch of people sign up. We had a lot of signups actually overnight with our sort of positioning on that iteration. And then when we actually asked them to do something, it was like crickets. So when we actually asked them to to, hey, post this, post anything you love about a brand on your Instagram account. It was like crickets. And I couldn't figure out what was happening. And so I ended up talking to them directly. I was talking to these users saying, hey, you spent 10 minutes on my website. You've been super engaged. You opted into this. Like, what's stopping you? And that's when the light bulb went off for me with Ari. That's when it was just pure validation on the problems with social commerce and how we purchase things and how we want to talk about things because these people did not want to do it on existing platforms. They said, I'm not an influencer. I don't know how to be an influencer. Um, I'm, you know, I'm not, I don't have the right lighting. I don't know, like all the things that don't matter at all. Right. They were so intimidated by, and they kept telling me that they wanted a new platform. 
And so I had to bite the bullet and I, and, you know, back to your question on how long it took, I didn't jump into that right away. I was trepidatious. I had people tell me, Oh gosh, you know, like there's no way you should be building a new platform. Like, what are you going to compete with Instagram? Like, no, I'm not competing with Instagram. I'm building something completely agnostic, something totally different, but you know, it would, people only know what they know. So it actually took me a couple months to kind of recalibrate and get my head wrapped around the fact that, okay, I'm going to, I know what, I know what's required now. And am I going to jump into this head first and go for it? And I just, it took me a couple months to, to wrap my head around it and go. Interesting. And during COVID, so a little bit, like I said, you're not traveling as much, you're sequestered into your own home. So it's interesting. There's, there's, I've had lots of conversations with like, okay, things I'm going to bring out of COVID, like good habits or, you know, what, you know, I don't want to waste, don't, don't ever waste a good crisis or all those, all those catchy buzz phrases. So interesting. I could, uh, I feel the weight of, Oh, oh, you're going to create your own social social media platform. Really, Sheena, that sounds like a great idea. Like, I can hear that little voice in the back of my mind going, what are you nuts? Like, what are you even thinking? How are you going to compete? But I appreciate you had such a driver around social, around purpose. So you're a tech startup. You're, you've got your own, you've got your own company. You've got your own, you've got your own agency. Were you self, I'm assuming you were self-funding up to this point. So when does that model start to come and, and kind of spool into like, oh, okay, goodness, I need to start looking for some money here or, or, or maybe, or, or where are you at in that journey? Yeah, um, I've I've I'm in my second raise right now. So I raised last fall. Uh, friends and family raise uh, around six hundred thousand dollars, okay. six or seven hundred thousand, nice. somewhere in there. Um, so I bootstrapped up until that point, and then uh, we're now doing a second raise because we have a product, and we're raising to start building our beta and get traction and move into our first market. So we're raising uh, 1.6 million right now, and by the time this podcast airs, uh, I'm sure that will be closed, and you know we'll be fully subscribed. So it's going really well, and uh, I'm very lucky to be surrounded by some incredible uh, investors. And you know we're not—it's nothing institutional. We're not doing anything, or we haven't you know raised right now on you know uh, on on equity. It's all on safe notes, and okay. it's all mostly individuals and family funds. Uh, but we do have interest from some big VC firms already uh, in the U.S., which I'm really excited about. Interesting. I was you beat me to my next question. Where's the money coming from? I'm assuming right now it's fairly much. Your, you sounds like a lot of your local and your your own network. And is that blended? Yeah. Is that kind of Western Canada? Like, would you say the majority of your investment money has come from Canadian based, uh, like you said, family offices, small firms? No, actually, this is the funny thing about entrepreneurial whatever the word. I can't even think of the word. But being an entrepreneur, it's you know, when it's so, this is what I would say to anybody starting out, like your network is everything and you don't know when you're going to need them. And I spent my entire career building up this network because I have this agency. I've, you know, I know people from all walks of life, from all corners of the earth. And then when I started Ari, it was that point in time where I went, okay, I need them now. I actually need these people. And how I had to sort of get over the the fear of asking right and i it it was it was a really cathartic process to go through your entire network and say who would support me or who do i think would be interested in this and just start picking up the phone and it's been incredible to see who has actually stepped up that i least expected <laughs> and the people that i did expect to invest haven't or are dragging their feet which i find is it, you know it's a really interesting uh, it's a really interesting experience. 
Well, just as a, as a human, the amount of vulnerability, the amount of like, you, you know, having a network is one thing, but then asking them back to your, your, even your first MVP, yeah, we're really into this. But then when you ask them to take action, that's a whole nother conversation. So I can, oh, yeah. you know, often what often I find what doesn't get talked about is the real human side of this. You mentioned imposter syndrome earlier, which I love just as a concept and how prevalent it is. But yet we always think the other people that we see in our life don't have it. It's just us that are dealing with it, which is statistically not, not true, but going out to your network and looking to raise funds and did you get a lot of like well no not me but I know somebody and I'm was there a lot of like I certainly know in western Canada and I would argue that kind of everywhere there is that willingness to help and like no I'm not but let me introduce you to so and so I'm assuming there was kind of a spider web effect that happened like that yeah absolutely and I have a really great coach I have an advisor who uh thankfully accepted me into his sphere early on and he's a you know a pretty well-known famous uh tech uh entrepreneur here in vancouver and he really brought me under his wing and uh that was one of the first things he told me is that the fundraising never stops and that mm. it's all about people people opening doors for you so your job as ceo is just full-time networker like full-time relationship building which in COVID is really hard because you're used to you know doing coffee meetings going to events and so now you're just limited to linkedin you're limited to your to your contact list in your cell phone um, but but funny enough going back to who's opening doors, more of my network in Calgary were the door openers than any other network in any other market. And I have investors in the US, I have investors from Mexico, I have investors from Vancouver, uh, Toronto, and, and I don't know if it's a cultural thing, I think it is, but the Calgarians just want to help. There is this innate sense of hospitality, I think, and this neighborly feel that we have for one another that we sincerely want to help each other. And I miss that about Calgary. And I, I appreciate that in Calgary. And it's something that I think is very overlooked in the outside world. That's so interesting. Uh, you're, you're really supporting my narrative, Sheena. We did not plan this out. I say on many, many a podcast, one biggest small town ever, that's an easy one. But also one of our superpowers is our willingness and our ability to help each other. Hell, I, yeah. I'm not into it, but I also find Calgarians will tell you like, no, no, this isn't me, but it's so-and-so and let me, don't worry, I'll, I'll send an email and I'll take that extra step. I'll put in the effort. I do believe it's one of our superpowers. I've had a few guests go, no, it's kind of like that everywhere. I'm like, hmm. I don't know. I grew up in Toronto, Montreal and inside your immediate circle, it's like that. But the second you step outside that the doors are, yeah. they close a lot or they're a lot they're harder locked. to open. Yeah. They are yeah. locked sometimes double locked yeah. with the, with the deadbolt where in Calgary. Yeah. yeah. You can meet and you know, even through this experience of the podcast, people are like, how do you get gas? It must be so hard. I'm like, no, everyone I talked to introduced me to three more people that they think I should meet or should that have a good story to be told. It just, it keeps, it, it starts to build on itself, its own energy really quickly. So I love that you said that Calgary versus, Oh, it shouldn't use the word versus Calgary, uh, other, uh, different than other jurisdictions. Maybe but I, I, I like to sing the Calgary praises here whenever I can. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, it's having, having left Calgary and still going back and forth. I have, you know, a really great line of sight as an outsider now versus an insider and the things that are, you know, that make it different. And I actually think, you know, this is going, this is again, a whole other podcast, but I think as Calgary's in transition, if I was, you know, the chamber or the mayor, if I was anybody that was in a position of power right now on who should be leading transformation of Calgary, I think you want to find those people that have external points of view, because that's really where Calgary, that's what Calgary needs right now. We don't want to, we, we, I don't think the city should be led through, you know, this sort of traditional insular institutional 
you know, the same faces, the same names that have come up through the energy sector, whatever. Great. We need people that have stepped out of Calgary, have worked in other places, have external experiences, can bring different points of view, can help Calgary really see themselves and see their reflection against the rest of the world. Because I do think there's a lot of opportunity for the city in the future if they, I think, step outside of the nest, so to speak. Step outside the comfort zone of what has been our resource sector and what has been our success for for years, and mm-hmm. you're right. We haven't really had to, you know. I think that cl- that community was global, and, and you know, Western Canada was known for its 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 know how and its ability to get stuff done in that one sector. Uh, but you're, I, I really value what you say. If we if we if we sing the same song, we're going to get the same audience, right? We need to do a little bit different, and you know, there's an. You've seen it already. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, the, like uh, I'm, the, I, the, I mean, I don't mean to yeah. be, I might offend people in this, but I'm seeing it as an outsider. I'm seeing like who's now sitting on boards and who's getting mm-hmm. promoted to run our, you know, non, our nonprofit organizations. And it's the same, it's the same bubble. It's the same people. And I think that we, mm-hmm. if you look outside of the people that have started their careers in Calgary left or come back or contributing, like those are the people, those are the people that are going to be able to go out and understand how to tap into these external networks. Cause they've been there, right. It goes back to sort of what I was talking about around sort of the social peripheral network piece. But, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, I, I I'm a huge advocate for that type of a, that type of an approach. So we'll see. And I I think, I think we're on the path, but it it is very slow to change. Uh, Speaking Mm -hmm. of just uh, on the journey, how's it been and how are, how are we doing from a scorecard perspective? You are raising money as a female, you're a female tech startup. Mm And again, you and I joked offline. It's not a topic I want to bring up like it's a thing, but it is a thing. And I've had a lot of female guests on talk about, Oh no, Tyler, it's a thing. And it's very real. And the statistics around female led startups versus the investment in female led startups, there still feels like there's a gap. I hope it's getting better, but curious, what's been your experience on that side of this conversation? Yeah, I mean, I'm no stranger to adversity. I mean, I, I I started my agency and my entire career in a man's world, you know, in real estate development. So I, <laughs> I'm I'm absolutely no stranger to that. So I I knew what I was getting into, and I, I frankly, I frankly maybe because of my history, I haven't really thought about it too much, and it doesn't intimidate that. me, but. As I've been in it and navigating through venture capital and educating myself on the VC world, it is an absolute truth that it is an old boys club, that it, it's gate the gatekeepers are quite strong. And there's a lot of great platforms and organizations that are trying to break through that, right? There's a lot of accelerators. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, you know, platforms like AngelList and, uh, you know, even some things that are happening with LinkedIn that are trying to open the doors more into the closed networks. And I think COVID accelerated that, right? COVID accelerated a lot of things. But one thing COVID did do for the VC community, and I think the tech startup community, is it made it okay to uh, look beyond your borders of your jurisdiction. So typically a lot of, you know, Silicon Valley investors will only invest in US or Silicon Valley based startups. You have to come from Harvard, you have to come from Amazon, but you have to have that sort of pedigree. And I think now because of COVID, people are starting to go, okay, the world is large here. And there's a lot of really great ideas and great people who maybe don't look exactly like the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world. Um, and I think, you know, I'm going to really, I think I'm very thankful to be in that position right now to be part of that transition. 
But at the same time, it's a transition. So you're still stuck sort of in the tug of war. And as a female, I've noticed that there's a lot of people that say they want to invest in female founders, that they either have a quota or they have, uh, it's part of their, it's part of their thesis, but the ways in which they look at female and putting their money into female entrepreneurs is no different than anybody else, which I think is the problem. And there's a lot of females, very female oriented investment firms, uh, that are looking at, there's putting us in the same box or through the same process as men. And I actually think that is what has to change. I think that tell me more, tell tell me more about that one. I like that. Yeah. I think that, you know, as women, we, first of all, as entrepreneurs, we have way more challenges to overcome, first of all, right? Many of us are are mothers. We've got young children at home. We might've been out of work for a few years. Um, there has never been like a consistency to, I think, a lot of our, um, our life experience. And so almost like interviewing us or creating a, um, I guess you could say a standard or a thesis on, on, on just that piece in itself doesn't, it's, it doesn't stick, right? Whereas we should be looked at for different things, different qualities, different skill sets. I think we should be reviewed based on our merit of being able to get shit done, quite frankly. <laughs> and, you know, there's no bet bigger superpower than a woman who's been able to juggle marriages and children and jobs. And I think that is, an, is a key ingredient that is overlooked and instead, we're put through the same sort of process of what school did you go to? Have you had previous startups? Um, you know, how consistent has your career been in this specific specific space? And, you know, I, so I think that there's there's some changes that should happen there. And I also think the way in which women want to present their idea and themselves is different. We're emotional creatures by habit, right? We We tell emotional stories. And that's actually the heart of technology, right? If you really think about it, it's about being able to really resonate with a problem and understand a problem and make that meaningful connection with people around a solution. And women are the best at seeing that, right? Like we just innately have this, you know, this understanding of people. And I think that that is also overlooked. And instead we have to present charts on revenue flow and, you know, stuff that doesn't matter at an early stage. Like, let us talk about the root of the problem. Let us, let us storytell. And I think that's what I would like to see more of. And I've been trying to guide my own pitches in that direction um, rather than trying to sort of fit into this standard. It, it, it harkens back to early in our conversation when we talked about even, you know, our world as marketers and specifically advertisers, especially around awareness, where you buy certain demographics. Why? Because it's easier. It's a formula. We've proven it. It works okay, but, you know, for lack of something better. Or what I'm hearing you talk about, I'm just curious how we get there. Because I, I, I have similar conversations in Calgary about, oh, we need to look at these people that are in, that have had 20 years of this career, understand what they were good at, and then appreciate that they can port some of those things over. Nope, sorry, if you don't have these courses, we can't hire you for this job. And it's, it's similar to that where it takes a lot of time to then look at that individual as an individual versus a set of checkboxes and criteria. There's a big transition between like, oh, I've got my sheet, and if by slide you don't slow me show me the revenue slide we're out it takes a it takes a lot more 
openness and creativity and I would say almost skill in the investor to be able to look at each person as an individual. Like I get why it doesn't happen. Yeah. I understand why it does, but how the heck do we get there? Like I love the I way know, you framed I, it. I think I think you're bang on. I totally agree. Yeah, it's uh I mean it's not easy and especially during COVID when we're limited to Zoom, right? And that's all you can really do is just have this type of a conversation. And I think that you really hit something on the head, though, around like getting to know the individual. So rather than just looking at their pitch deck or rather than just, uh, you know, looking at them on LinkedIn, like find ways to get to know them as people and have those human conversations. And I think that and because, you know, even investors themselves will say like they're at this stage, they're investing in the person more than they are anything else. And they say that. But yet it's. They don't really get to know you at all, right? It's like, well, tell us your tell us your thesis, tell us, you know, why you think this is gonna work. Like, let's look at the market share, the competitive analysis, da da da. It's like, well, get to know me as a person. And I, you know, trust me, I empathize with them. I empathize with the amount of calls and emails that they get and the amount of people and ideas that they have to sift through. I can't imagine how intimidating it, it, that it, is. It, it is dysfunctional dating, right? At, at its best. <laughs> yeah, it is. I'm, I'm it looking is. for so, deal flow. I'm looking for money. I'm, it, I've got to look at a hundred pitches to find one that lands. I don't have, I can't physically get to know each individual, but yet we all say the same thing. No, no, you're investing in people like pitch decks. Don't build startups. People build startups and people exactly. make, make people put the blood and sweat in the tears. And, but yet we still rely on the deck because we have to have some type of standard. It's like, well, you're in marketing. It's like being involved in the RFP process. You're like, oh my God, come on. We're going to fill out this weird criteria. We're not going to get to know each other. We're not going to know what it's like to work together. But yet someone who's good at pitching wins. And then the relationship is terrible and falls apart because nobody took the time to get to know each other because that wasn't our process. It doesn't work exactly. there either. <laughs> it kind of reminds me yeah. of that. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I honestly don't know what, I wish I knew what the answer was. Cause maybe that could be the billion dollar idea, <laughs> but it's, uh, nice, nice. I don't know. I think it's just, I think it's a mindset. It's a mindset, changing your mindset to work away from, you know, this sort of, yeah, the deck, the, the stats, cause that's important, but yeah, yes, really trying to figure out a way to get to know the person better. And I think you never know, like you, you make connections with people in the weirdest way over the strangest things and those are the ones that you, and th those are the ones that do well, right? Those are the, yeah. those are the people that do well together. Well, nothing much in life happens without a relationship, right? Always. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cur curious, when you think about some of the conversations you've had in the Valley or in the U.S. where I've had lots of conversations with, I'm actually doing a series right now on venture cap and raising some, I'm, I'm just in the process of getting a bunch of guests to talk about this ecosystem and kind of where it's succeeding, where it's failing from the big all the way down to the small. And they said, yeah, we're five to eight years behind some of the U.S., uh, the way they do it, the, just even the stages from seed to pre-seed to series A to series B and working your way through. And he goes, you know, Calgary, uh, or Western Canada, you get these big headlines about these big raises, but that's a very small group of investors and a very small group of companies. What about the other, the ones we really need, those hundreds of startups we need that need 50 grand or quarter million or 500 grand. Did you notice that in the US there was a different conversation that you were experiencing in Western Canada or did you oh, find yeah. it was kind of a universal gap? No, I mean, gosh, this is the biggest, I think the biggest problem with Canada and you know, I, and dare I say the West, the West coast, cause I, I think it's more prevalent in the West coast that Calgary and Vancouver, that we are just so conservative by nature, mm. right? We're a conservative culture. We're not risk takers. If you look at the U S they have sort of a cowboy culture. They have this like gambling, gambling culture of like, let's, yeah, let's just throw it all out there. Rack up the credit cards, live a good life. Like there's just a much more of a cowboy <laughs> 
yeah. it's just a cowboy culture, right? And they're less risk averse. And so I think with 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 Canada though, it's uh, it's sort of this polite fear, and it's <laughs> oh, you know, I this is a great idea, but you know, we're, we we want to see we're, we we really measure people based on very traditional metrics. So I do think raising in Canada is easier to some respect when you get larger. Uh, because that's what Canadians expect. Investors they want to see the they want to see the performa. They want to see you know your your annual revenue year over year. So there, that's really I think where you get their attention. Where the gap is right now in Canada in the tech sector is in the early so angel through to seed. I think okay. we are missing opportunities left, right, and center. I think we are forcing startups like myself to go to the U.S. And uh, because we just can't wrap our head around the the structure that's required to get us off the ground. And sorry, I mean, like even right now, I'm I most of the people I've talked to, I said I'm not raising, I'm not giving, I'm not giving equity up right now. I'm raising on a safe note. Half the people don't know what a safe note is; they've never heard of it. And you know, it was a term created in Silicon Valley for early stage startups that's predominantly used. You mentioned a safe in the US and everyone's like, yep, great, here's a check, go. And so it's a much more seamless way for early stage investors to be able to raise. But I've been, I've dug my heels in on it. I've had offers from people um, who will say, I'll give you X amount of dollars for this much equity. And I dig my heels and I say, no, because you're gonna do a disservice to the venture. And what matters is the venture and the future of the venture. And we need traction. We need to hit all these different things before we put a valuation on ourselves. And before we set up a board and before we do all these things. And so I think that the Canadian investment community, the best thing they can do is use the U.S. to some degree as a a bit of a a compass and a template on where to go, especially with like the, the early to seed stage rounds. I really appreciate what you said about protecting the integrity of the venture. I've had a few guests on talk about, you know, I had a couple uh, individuals specifically out of out of Kitchener-Waterloo talking about the Canadian market, how it sabotages startups too early by diluting, by taking too much ownership, not positioning them for the second, third, mm-hmm. and fourth round. Like you're already in trouble before you even get out of the gate because you mm-hmm. gave up too much. You, you jeopardize the integrity of the venture too early. I can imagine that's been an interesting conversation for you to say, well, politely, no, I'm not giving up giving you an equity piece what uh, i was curious the safe note in something i've heard the term but i'll be honest i'm like yeah nodding but i'm like no i don't really know um what's how is it secured how does like how does it we're getting way in that we're nerding out now how, how does the the mechanics of it work to give the investor that like peace peace of mind to whatever degree yeah. when when playing with a startup yeah in short it's almost like a loan that you're giving okay. to an investor and your loan converts to equity when you actually do your first raise. So in Ari's case, um, you know, we're planning on converting all of our safe notes at seed round when we have evaluation and we have term sheets from, um, you know, a VC at that stage. And so you put a hundred thousand dollars into Ari, um, and it converts based on a valuation cap that we set in the safe note contract, um, or at a discount. Um, so typical discount on a safe note is around 20%. Okay. Interesting. And there's nothing that secures that safe note beyond the success of the the future success of the company. No, you can. And the great thing about them too, though, is that you can raise as you can take as many as you want too. So throughout the, Mm. the cycle, the life cycle of the venture, and this is why we're doing a second round of saves is that we did a first round 
And uh, it got us to our alpha, got us to our product, got us to where we needed to be, where we promised investors. And then we needed more, but we weren't ready to actually go and start collecting term sheets. And so we decided, okay, let's just collect a few more safes. So we had our existing investors step back in. We've been able to bring in new investors because we now have, we've made a lot of progress and we have a great product. We have users in our app, like it's, it's pretty amazing. And so, you know, we were able to collect more and it doesn't, it protects the, it doesn't dilute uh, yeah, I understand. It, yeah, and it doesn't it doesn't affect the uh, the venture, and so with the with the safe notes, um, it's just a really it's a quick way to bring investment in, um, and it's definitely more founder friendly. Okay. Um, so some of the bigger VCs don't like it, but if you're an early, if you're an angel investor and you're just kind of getting in the game, it's uh, you know it's a really great easy easy thing to do. And just to put it into context and without of the specifics, but what was the typical investment? And, and I think this is a conversation I've been having recently of like, you know, you, the news gets the $10 million or the cement who raised 75 million in their series B or something like that. That makes the headlines, but there's lots of opportunities. There's, and there's also, let's forget Let's not forget about the, the democratization of allowing smaller investors to get involved in this game, like the black box of venture capital. And if unless you're, unless you fit this Hollywood criteria, you don't get to play in that space. Mm -hmm. And I've had a few people I've chatted with. They're like, there's lots of people out there that want to invest 50, 75, hundred, 200 and support kind of like the invest in your neighbor concept versus simply yeah. what we, what gets the headlines. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, We've had, we have a range, right? I mean, right now we're raising a minimum hundred thousand based on, basically we're, we're raising a minimum hundred thousand um, okay, dollars a person, but early stage. Yeah. We had 10,000, 20,000, a really popular thing to do is create a syndicate, which actually founders love because then you're not managing 30 to 40 different <laughs> investors. So I'm actually talking with a group of female high net worth investors in Vancouver right now who are very high profile, who same thing. They want to, they, they sort of move in a group and they are interested in Ari and they want to make an impact. And we're putting a syndicate together where all of them are going to put money in. And I just deal with one of them instead of 10 of them and they get their piece and it looks great on our cap table. Cause then we have, you know, a million dollars through a syndicate versus like a $20,000 Jane Joe. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's proof of concept, it's validation. It's showing other investors, Hey, we're safe. Cause this group of really skilled, knowledgeable individuals have decided to come in in this area. There's so much mm -hmm. of the signaling that you're, that you're putting out there to, to your community as you start to get success begets success, right? <laughs> Ever Calgary yeah. that I've always heard, there's a big list of people really excited to be second, but that first person position is a much smaller group of people. <laughs> oh, for sure. It's hard to be first, right? Especially like when you're, when you have a very disruptive idea and Ari is very disruptive. Like Ari is changing. We're basically changing the model, right? We're, we're flipping things on its head and it's, you know, it's a hill to climb because we have to, we have to convince users and tap into users, um, you know, psychology there. And then we have to also tap into the retailer and brand side to go, Hey guys, like you've been complaining about this forever. Here's your opportunity to do it differently, take a chance. And so, you know, I do liken us to like an Airbnb, an Uber type um, company that, you know, we, we do not fall in the typical market landscape of social commerce. Like we are completely vertical social commerce and, and, and a very new formula. 
I'm curious how, how, and if you don't want to get into this, how, how does it monetize? Like, how does it, how does it work in mm-hmm. the long run in terms of like, how does the money move, move back and forth, <laughs> ultimately follow sure. the money? It's been the underpinning of our whole yeah. conversation today. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm an advocate for it again, after, you know, doing all this research and validation and again, all my experience in this industry, I'm a firm believer in, in identifying your business model up front. And I never wanted to be, I never wanted Ari to be a social network. I say that in quotation marks and we're not, I never wanted us to be a social network that was just going to go out there and try to get as much content as possible and then figure out a way to monetize it later, because that's what's happened. This is what's broken the system right now is that the only answer is advertising or subscriptions. So when I sat down and looked at it, I went, let's build something that both the consumer and the retailers and brands want, and it can be a win-win for them. So let's build it together versus separately, right? Which is typically what happens. You build SaaS products, you build technology for the retailer, the brand, or you're building sort of more consumer-oriented type products, and then you figure out how to connect the two later. And that's the mess that's going on right now with social commerce, is that we have Instagram trying to plug in e-commerce tools. We have TikTok that just announced that they were doing some sort of like scan on shopping people's outfits that you see, which for the life of me, I can't imagine who's shopping on Sorry, uh, not on TikTok, on Snapchat. I can't imagine who's who's doing that. But anyways, it's a it's a race with the big the big guys to try to figure out how to create social commerce. And meanwhile, you have people like Ari that really understand the problems at a fundamental level between both sides of the marketplace. And so our business model is basically a variety of different revenue streams that play into how these businesses and how people are wanting to make revenue today. So we do, uh, we're based on a commission structure, but not an affiliate. So brands pay for what they get. So if I talk about a t-shirt that I'm wearing today and on Ari and I sell 10 of them, then the brand only pays the commission for what I actually sell. They don't have to negotiate a contract with me up front. They're not paying me in hopes that I'm going to get something They're not looking at me saying, does she fit our brand profile? And so we split the commissions with the, Ari splits the commissions with the um, user, and then we take a piece. And then we also take a percentage of that commission to reinvest back into the platform and basically um, uh, uh, spread those dollars across the platform into other people's people's wallets or their Um, Mm e-wallets who might want to be incentivized to shop with this brand. So that's oh, one revenue okay. stream. I, I see, and then, so incentivize yeah. behavior by giving credits here. Yeah, no, okay, yeah. I understand. Mm. Yeah, and then the the second way is, you know, we have an e-wallet, which we call an e-purse. And uh, basically, it's the place where you can um, transact through RE and collect your rewards and um, your incentives. And we have e-purse optimization on that. So we just take a percentage when you remove dollars from your e-wallet. So it's pretty straightforward uh, business model. And there's also, you know, a lot many more revenue streams that we're going to be testing in the future here. Um, But yeah, it's just based on the premise that you know, a lot of these brands and retailers are paying enormous amounts of money right now in advertising for eyeballs. They're already paying high commissions to their sales team and to through affiliate links. And there's tons of leakage everywhere. And so we're saying we're going to do we're going to play into the same model because they've already built it, but we're just going to execute it a lot differently and make it more of a more valuable for them. Appreciate that. Uh- where are the bulk of your users and uh, on the on the human side, not the brand side or the individual side? Are they are you noticing uptick in the U.S. Is it Canada? Like where where are you seeing in terms of where are you getting those first kind of bumps in terms of people mm-hmm. saying, yeah, yes, please, thank you, I've been looking for something like this. Yeah, it's uh, well, we're in test flight, so we're in an incubation right now, so we mm-hmm. actually haven't been able to. 
uh, take the app and spend a lot of money on marketing to to get any sort of scale or traction okay, on it right okay, now, which okay, we're purposefully sure. doing. Yeah. So I don't have a lot of those numbers, but we do have a few hundred people in our test flight. Okay. Um, we've got really high return um, usage on a daily daily rate. And it's kind of surprising to me because it's not a lot for users to do right now, but they keep coming back. And so it's great. But um, but yeah, they're definitely more female. That's for sure. Uh, they are definitely, I'd say, on the younger side, if we are to demographic profile, they're definitely more on like the younger spectrum of millennials, okay. um, some Gen Zs. Gen Zs are a little bit more cautious because they want that social proof first and foremost, right? And uh, we're, we're going to market uh, in LA first. So we're, okay. we're going to try to tackle the West Coast. Um, we're moving into that market here this summer. And, uh, yeah, that's where we're going to, we're going to sort of try to take market share there and then replicate that model and move across the country. Well, just, just sheer size of opportunity. It's hard not to. And diversity. And, you know, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of different reasons that that we're going Mm -hmm. after that market. Uh, but yeah, naturally right now, I think what we're seeing going, you know, playing into that sort of values piece of, of, uh, you know, our users, they are people that some of them have, you know, 50,000 followers on Instagram. Some of them have 300. Some of them are personal stylists. Some of them are salespeople for retailer stores. So the one thing they have in common is that they love style. They love shopping. They love learning from other people. They share the same values of Ari in the sense that they don't want to have to compete for these false ideas of perfection. They don't want to have to compete for vanity metrics. They don't want to feel judged or isolated. Um, and that's why they're there. That's why they keep creating. They want to help people. Yeah. Very cool. At the, at the core of it. Yeah. Um, Sheena, so interesting. One, I love, I love your passion and your, and your purpose and also the real mechanics of what you've learned by throwing yourself into this over the last, the last 12 months. So maybe just a closing thoughts, kind of top three, top two, like kind of top pieces of advice for somebody like you've been 12 months, you've been during COVID, like what a crazy, but awesome time. And I really appreciate how you've capitalized on the last kind of 14, 15 months to make this happen. Somebody's listening and they're on their edge of like, should I, or shouldn't I, any kind of words of advice or things that you would really maybe read the classic, what would you tell yourself 14 months ago question? Oh, that's a big one. I think that, uh, I think it's the name of a book as well, but it's called feel the fear and do it anyways. (laughs) <laughs> and the reason that I even started Ari was that I just made a, I made a decision that it not doing it, the, the outcomes of not doing it would be worse if I tried. And I think, you know, someone told me this piece of advice. I can't remember who it is, but it was around, um, stress and work-life balance. And that was sort of under the guise that we were talking about it and risk-taking. And I can't, I can't remember who said it to me, but they said, you know, evaluate it evaluated in a way that if the risks of not doing it are greater than the risks of doing it and you know actual risks like life-threatening risks financial risks to your family like if you're going to go out and do a startup and you have to remortgage your house and you're going to put your children like putting food in your children's mouth at risk mm, probably mm. not that is a pretty big risk right um but if it's just fear of rejection or failure then that's a that's a psychological thing that you just need to get over and, and work on every day to overcome. So that, that was some of the best advice that I ever got was weigh the risks. If they're real risks, that you, it's valid not to do it. Um, but most of the time, it's just our heads playing with us. I love the differentiation between like real life and death risks or um, the story that I made up in my head today about 
you know, back to imposter syndrome and all the things that unfold from even just that concept. <laughs> and I yeah, think it's very real. Like, and, uh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. There's not, I mean, it's not to say you're not going to have to make sacrifices because sacrifices are part of the risk, right? Like when I started Ari, I had to sacrifice my social life. I had to sacrifice, you know, a lot of things I had to sacrifice financially as well. Like the things that the lifestyle that I, you know, was used to, I had to make sacrifices on. I had to put my agency at risk. So I had to walk away from my agency and allow my leadership team to run it and take that risk. I had to spend less time with my kids. Like there's all sorts of different sacrifices that I had to make, but they weren't going to kill me and they weren't going to put my entire life, you know, at risk. Oh, but I heard it, it was calculated. It wasn't that there was a risk, but they were calculated and, and maybe ranked and stacked in the in the correct order versus allowing our minds to kind of overshadow and blow things up. What I also heard, and I don't want to give put your words, but you were able to pivot. You were able to realize that, hey, this wasn't the right idea. And I've heard so many of that advice, like don't stay in your basement protecting your baby. Get it out there and let people tell you maybe it's not as pretty as you thought it was. And yeah. you know, the ability to change what you thought was your big idea, that's easy to, you said it very casually and like, no, we got out there and people wouldn't ask. And I realized that, boom, this is what we actually needed. I think there's a lot to be credited for you in a very short period of time going, okay, all right, well, that was a good idea. I learned a lot and I'm going to move on and do some, and pivot to a new platform. I think it's easy to talk about it flippantly. I think it can really, it can really sabotage people on the, on the journey of like failure mm-hmm. is part of it. And we're, let's be honest, we're not trained well for failure in, in the lives that we live. Most of us or certainly how we've no. been brought up. The school system doesn't no. train us to, well, that's okay. You tried, we'll do better next time. No, it's like we say that, but deep down, nobody wants failure. (laughs) No, and I think especially now, and that's the culture that has sort of been bred into us right now through, you know, what media, social media, I think has really um, elevated for us is like this. And I can't imagine being a young person and navigating my way through this world with comparing, having to compare yourself to everybody and feel that pressure And I think that's part of it. That's again, like why I'm doing Ari is that it's named after my daughter because I want to build something for her. I want to build something that when she's, when she's old enough to start, you know, using technology that she can go to a place where she feels very empowered to be herself, express who she uniquely is, knows that that's worth something and that's valued. And you know, who doesn't, and who doesn't love shopping. So under the guise of shopping, (laughs) it's a, it's a way to connect meaningfully with with people and and brands and I stand for brands I stand for the retailers who work their butt off and these businesses that have invented these great consumer products and they are left to bleed their bank accounts to be able to get eyeballs and compete against millions of different brands on basically two platforms or three platforms that are available. So it's just not fair, right? The whole thing needs to be democratized. The whole thing needs to get back to what matters and what's important, which is like the people who actually invest their hard earned dollars into your brand and like it, they are your advertisement. They are your salesperson. And those are the people that we need to empower. Those are the people that need to be invested in. And, you know, together, I think we can, we can do real good. Okay. That's mic drop. I'm, I'm just going to let it, I'm going to let it sit right there. That was amazing. Um, okay. And let's get to the real brass tacks. How do people, how do people find out more? How do they invest? How do they get, get involved? Maybe they want to be part of your testing platform. Give us the, yeah. give us all the, all the best ways to get a hold of you. Sure. Um, I mean, you can go to our website. It's, um, re.life and L I F E, or you can drop me an email at Sheena S H E E N A H at re.life and would love to to hear from you for sure 
you know, love your passion, love what you're creating. Thanks just for, for your honesty and being the willingness to just have a real candid conversation about the journey. Because, you know, from the outside, it can often look like a black box. And you made it very real and very accessible today for anybody maybe on that edge of like, mm, should I? And uh, that was really inspiring. <laughs> thanks, thanks so much for sharing your story and love your passion, love your honesty. Thank you. Thanks, Tyler.